Sit back and relax. Go ahead. This is pretty cool, huh, to be out here. Well, it's not cool, like in the literal sense, but in the hip sense, it doesn't get any cooler than this to be out here. Hey, how many of you um, have stories from your childhood that it's easy to remember those. I mean, they just kind of stand out for you, these events. I don't know about you, but for me, they're all negative. Like, I don't have any positive ones that, that just really jump out, but I got a bunch of negative ones. Uh, one of them is, when I was in fifth grade, I was part of, I, as part of um, an elective, I was part of the school band. And we had this performance a recital for the parents. And so the whole auditorium was filled up with family and parents and things like that. And I was going to do this solo. I took up the clarinet and I was doing this solo from a song called More. Most of you have never heard of it, but it goes more than the greatest love the world has known. And that seventh note, more than the greatest love the, is a tough note to hit. So I am all by myself on the stage, sitting in a chair, I get to that seventh note, and it, the clarinet squeaked. <laughs> and it got me a little flustered, but no big deal. I'll just start over. It's only seven notes ago. So I started over. Sure enough, it happened again. Now I'm getting really, I'm getting really flustered, you know. I tried it one more time. It happened again. And I'll never forget, I ran off the stage crying, vowing that I would never, ever, ever stand in front of a big group again. <laughs> okay, fast forward about 30 years. I'm now a follower of Jesus in Southern California. I'm on staff uh, as an associate pastor. And eventually they asked me if I would do uh, the Christmas Eve service one year. And so this would be my first time presenting in front of an audience again. And I had already forgotten the fifth grade thing. It really wasn't having much of an effect. And so I studied diligently, you know, tried to come up with a really clever, inspirational Christmas Eve message. I decided that I would not bring any notes up. And as soon as I got started, I, start, I began to get anxious and my brain kind of shut down. And I just felt like the whole thing came out disjointed, but I wasn't 100% sure. So after that first message, I went up to one of the elders then, and I said, hey, did that come across okay? And he put his hand on my shoulder and said, you can't win them all, Gene. <laughs> oh. So when I came out here in Bold to Boulder in 1994, the big personal question I faced was, will I be able to handle all the responsibilities and pressures of a lead pastor, essentially, especially since in those early days, I led worship and I preached. It was the Gene Binder show for sure. And um, I have to admit in those early years, and some of you, I'm already looking, some of you were back, were there back then. It was a challenge for me to overcome the deep insecure wounds that I had, which was the root cause that was, that was making me short circuit at times. See, I grew up in a home with a dad who would often blow up into a shaming fit of emotional rage. And typically it was over me not doing something quick enough or not doing something good enough. So very early on in life, I developed this negative self-talk in my head, especially during situations where my performance mattered. 
And uh, situations like making presentations at school, which you had to do, you know, a lot growing up in school, especially um, competing in sports. I played competitive tennis. Um, that would always, you know, if I, if I made it down up the ladder in tournaments, I only got so far, and then my negative talk would kick in. And you know, if you're an athlete, that is just death. And even pursuing relationships with the opposite sex. I was the kind of guy who was really good at many things, but I'm never uh, great or proficient at anything. Because sooner or later, my negative head game would sabotage my success, and my ceiling level was held hostage to what I would call just mediocre. Um, anybody relate to this at all? Oh, good. Lots of not, nobody shook their head at all. They were all, everybody's had none of this stuff. So I'll share more about my journey a little bit later on. But my story, I know this. You know, I've been a pastor long enough now. I know this is everyone's story. Um, it, different circumstances maybe, but similar limiting results for us. For all of us, it's a story of overcoming the things that happen to us in life that tend to drag us down. And the reason how I know this to be true, other than just personal experience, is because the parable we're going to look at today explains why we all experience so much pain and struggle in our life. And I have to confess, I'll, I'll do this right away, my parable is not really a parable in the classic sense because it involves real people who are involved in real events. And typically parables are fictitious stories intended to impart some kind of a moral or spiritual application. But this story is very parabolic, okay? Uh, in its teaching application. In fact, I consider it to be a mega parable or a mega metaphor that describes the highest goal every church should aspire to. A goal that is front and center here at Cornerstone. And I think you'll see what I'm talking about as we dive deep into the story to discover the true Jewish context and application, okay? Besides, I figured now that I have a room named after my family, I can get away with just about anything. So if you don't buy the parable story, it doesn't matter, okay? I was scheduled to give this message last week, but as Brian mentioned in the sermon last week, Andrew and I were, were down in the Mexican Riviera. We're celebrating 48 years of marriage, 70 years of me being on this planet, and we both couldn't leave to get back here in time because we tested positive for COVID. Andrew, the very first day we got there, so it was a miserable vacation for both of us and you know you still need a negative test to get back to the United States and we just couldn't couldn't get that before last Sunday but thankfully we made it back last Thursday and here I am today I've titled this message uh, the day Jesus kills a fig tree Andrea said that is the worst title of a message I've ever seen you give but I'm hoping that it'll be intriguing to you the day Jesus kills a fig tree I was going to use the word murder but I thought that was too strong and just in case you're not familiar with a fig tree, here's one here. This is a broadleaf, or a, uh, a fiddle leaf fig tree. And um, if you've never seen a fig, this is kind of a dehydrated fig. It's not fig season yet, so you can only get figs like this in jars. Or maybe you've had a fig Newton <laughs> once or twice in your life. That middle is really, it's almost all figs with a little bit of sugar in it. Um, and 
I only like fig jam on my toast. That's all I eat. I love fig jam. So fig trees are plentiful in Israel. Uh, they typically produce their fruit, their fruit in the fall, which is why you can't get fresh figs right now. But as we look at this crazy parabolic story in the Bible, it's very important for all of us to put on our notice all the details in this story glasses, okay? Because in the end, it's going to be the details that will drive us to this story's true Jewish context. So you with me? You and me, we're going we're gonna to notice some things in the story that typically you might gloss by as being inconsequential, but all these details matter. God puts them in these stories for a reason. And um, this is going to be important. Both Mark and Matthew record this story. They're a little bit different in how they play out. We're going to look at Mark's account, and that is in Mark chapter 11, verse 12 through 14. And here's what it says. The next day as they, meaning Jesus and his disciples, were leaving Bethany. Bethany, if you know anything about Israel at all, if you've been there, if you've been to the Temple Mount, you go down into the Gohon Valley, you come up the other side to the Mount of Olives, you climb the Mount of Olives, you go over the hill, and Bethany is about a mile or two down the road from there. So that's where they're coming from. They're leaving Bethany. Jesus was hungry, seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf. He went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now, if you do some research on this passage, you're going to find that most commentators uh, say that this passage is teaching how important it is for followers of the Messiah to bear fruit in their lives. And although there are several places in the New Testament where that is true, this passage is not one of them, okay? I'm going to show you why, and I think you'll agree by the time we get to the end that that is not the, the teaching that Jesus is looking for. Um, and the first detail I want you to notice is that Jesus is what? He's hungry. He's hungry. So the next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. You can't get any more basic than hunger, can you? Presumably, they're leaving Bethany uh, with his disciples in the morning. Matthew's account says it's in the morning. And we discover in the next set of verses that they're on their way to Jerusalem. So it appears that a healthy Mediterranean meal of figs was on the breakfast menu for them, but that's not going to be in the cards. And maybe now Jesus' blood sugar is a little bit low. I don't know. Maybe he has hypoglycemia or something like that. Because he seems a little hangry in this story. After all, he was a human, and we humans get hungry. And have you ever been hangry before? I get hangry. I mean, there are times where all of a sudden my blood sugar drops and everything gets exaggerated, right? Doesn't it? So if you've been hangry before, and I'm sure you have, then you can understand how even the slightest issue can blow up during a time like that. What is Jesus hangry about? Well, at face value, it seems like blocked breakfast goals, right? He was hoping to eat figs, and there's none. But he's, listen to what he says. This is, 
he looks up at the tree and what does he notice? It says that he sees only leaves and no figs on the tree. But make sure you also notice that this tree only has leaves and no fruit. Why? Because it's not the season for figs. And of course, Jesus knows this, but that knowledge seems to do nothing to assuage his anger one bit. In fact, it seems to infuriate him even more because in verse 14, Jesus then curses this poor, fruitless tree that is only doing what it's made to do. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Just even that last phrase, letting us know that the disciples heard him say it means something. And maybe they're thinking, wow, someone woke, woke up on the wrong side of the bed this morning. Let's just give him a little space until his morning coffee kicks in. And honestly, for me, this whole incident kind of reminds me of my dad's anger. Because doesn't it seem like Jesus is shaming this tree for not being quick enough or not being good enough? Where's your fruit, you good-for-nothing tree? Shame on you. No one's ever going to eat your fruit again. And it kind of makes my eyes twitch like it did when I was a kid, just kind of listening to that exchange. And the disciples heard him say this. One of the disciples had to be thinking, somebody give this guy a candy bar, quick. Okay, so their breakfast goals are blocked. Off they go to Jerusalem. And hopefully with a calmer Jesus, but keep in mind, they still haven't had anything to eat. So I'm guessing it's going to be a long day for everyone. Let's see what happens, all right? You've probably never had what happens next connected to the tree thing, but here it is. It's the very next story, verse 15 to 18. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts, and what's he do? He begins driving out those who are buying and selling there. He overturns the table of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and he wouldn't let anyone carry merchandise through the temple courts. Can you imagine the scene? Can you imagine if somebody walked into our foyer and went up to the table where my book is and said, get rid of that Connecting the Dots books, you know, and just started turning over tables and chairs and making a scene there. Now, I'm not going to spend any more time looking and teaching on this particular section, but I just wanted you to see that something is really bothering Jesus this particular day. He's been to the temple countless times in the past, and those cheating money changers were there every time, every single time. But for some reason on this day, Jesus decides to make a scene. And it all seems to be started with that fruitless fig tree encounter. Okay, so now we're going to fast forward to the next morning. And we get to see what happens to this tree that Jesus cursed. It says, verse 20 and 23, in the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from its roots. So it's dead. This thing died overnight. Peter remembered, what do you remember? He remembered that Jesus cursed the tree and he says to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And Jesus says, have faith in God. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, it does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. And so 
We can see that from the construction of this sentence, Peter is really surprised that the tree is dead. And could it be that his surprise is not that the tree has died, but that Jesus killed what seems to be an innocent tree? And I want to address the killing of this innocent tree for just a moment to see whether Jesus crossed some kind of a moral boundary. Because I'm guessing there's at least one or two people, or maybe even more, here or maybe on the stream who would be thinking, why would Jesus kill a perfectly normal living tree for being fruitless when it's not the season for fruit? Doesn't that create some kind of a moral conundrum. And if you happen to be thinking this way, the answer to this question is, no, it's not a moral problem. It's just a tree, for God's sake. You've been living in Boulder too long here. Like, listen, I, I am one of those people I respect. I respect God's creation, every bit of it, animals, trees, grass, you name it, I respect it. I have a wife who makes our yard looks absolutely amazing. And we both respect everything that's living. But you know, when we prune our trees, we don't give them anesthesia because it's just a tree. And if we, if we take one down and we use a stump grinder to get out the trunk, it's very violent, right? But there's no violence there. It's just... A tree. And I want, I'm just asking for a little forgiveness for leading down this provocative path because I know there might be some listening today who would generally feel concerned for this tree. I did when I first read this story way back then. Why would Jesus do this? And you should have some empathy for the fairness in this, okay? I'm going to fix the fairness in just a little bit, all right? But I didn't want anyone to get stuck right here. You know how you can get stuck on something? And now you stop listening to everything else because you're just stuck on this one thought. I didn't want anyone to get stuck for that. So just to be clear, Peter is not concerned about the killing of this tree. Okay? He's surprised at the power Jesus had to kill it. And he wants to have that kind of power in his own life. And that's why Jesus' response doesn't seem to connect to the story, right? He says, well, if you have faith, you can say to a mountain. You can just say to the front range here, go into the sea, and it will be done. Now, before I explain what this actually means, because this is a very specific kind of teaching, I want to resolve the mystery about why Jesus was so angry just 24 hours ago. Because as I stated in the opening of this message, the answer to this question frames the highest goal that every church should aspire to. And to solve this mystery, we need to look at a few passages in the Bible about food. And since I'm a foodie, this is the fun part of the message for me. And the place to start is in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 1. God creates the world in six days. What, What does he do on the third day? He creates food. Lots of it. Genesis 1, 
11 through 13 says, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. And the land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and the trees bearing fruit with seed in according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and morning on this third day. So before I go on, I want to ask you a question. Were there fig trees in the garden? If you think there were, raise your hand. If you don't know, raise your hand. Oh, that's good. Okay. So this is interesting. Yes, in fact, the fig tree is the only tree mentioned by its name of the fruit. And despite what maybe you've heard before that Adam and Eve ate an apple, it doesn't say that in the scripture. It just says they ate the fruit, the forbidden fruit. It doesn't say an apple, all right? But where is the fig tree mentioned in the garden story? Right after Adam and Eve sinned, they clothed themselves Whoa. with fig leaves. And this is big enough to do the job, isn't it? Those apple leaves would not do it. Stay. Here's another question. Did you know that there were only vegetarians until after the, f the flood? Okay, I see a bunch of nodding. This side, the, <laughs> oh, we got a couple of vegetarians right there. Okay. This side seems to know more than this crowd. I'm worried about this side of the, the audience. Yeah, we, I mean, you're going to have to fact check. I can't, I don't want to get into this. I don't have time. But it, Genesis chapter 9, right after the flood, God says, just like I gave you every seed-bearing plant for food, now I give you the animals for food. And the fear, the dread of man will be upon animals. Well, why? Well, because you're going to be eating them. That's why. Everything changed after the flood. And if you think about the garden, there would, since there's no eating of animals, they'd have to have a really st a steady flow of being attacked by fig trees. I think this is going to go down. It's lost its stability. Okay. Where's Brian when you need him? <laughs> that is good. I like that. Yeah, there's a metaphor right there. There'd have to be like a steady flow of, of fruits and grains and vegetables in order to sustain man, right? And... We can imagine back then that because of this steady flow and because there's no curse, that it was just like basically either reaching up and picking it down or even picking it off the ground. There was so much abundance. And that's kind of the picture you get from Genesis 1 and then the retelling of the creation story in Genesis 2 is that it was easy. It was easy street. But that all changes after they sin as God curses the ground. And from this point on, now there's weed and there's pestilence and it's going to hinder food production. And then after the flood, there's enough climate change that makes food production even more difficult because now there's going to experience famines and, and floods and droughts. And instead of the, the trees and the plants con continually producing a crop, most, will only, most trees in the world today only produce one crop per year. Some will get two. 
Guess which one? The fig tree. Both in the fall. And so if you just think back to that day where Jesus is hangry and he's looking up at the fruit tree and he sees no fruit, his hunger only reminds him how, of the horrible toll that the curse is taking upon mankind. A curse that is the root cause of things like hunger, poverty, homelessness, but even addictions and divorce and cancer and COVID and earthquakes and floods and hurricanes and death and so much more. This is all a result of moving out of the garden, this, this garden of Eden, this perfect place into a world now where there's going to be struggle and toil. And Jesus' temper tantrum at the temple that day after visiting the fruitless tree it was only magnified even more by the corruption he saw in the one place, the one place that's supposed to be where lost and broken and wounded and desperate people can find refuge. But instead it become a den of robbers who took advantage of their desperation. God help them and God help any church today where the main goal is financial gain. Or the main goal is anything, for that matter, that is more important than creating a safe, sacred environment where people can find refuge for, for healing and restoration and wholeness from the effects that the curse has ravaged in their lives. Next to the family, the church is supposed to be the safest place on earth, but sadly the family and the church is often just the opposite of that. My family was not a safe place. And as soon as I was old enough, I spent as little time possible in my home. And although God led me to a great church uh, to find Jesus in California, it was not the safest place to be open and transparent about wounds and shortcomings. And so we didn't talk about them, and so we didn't heal from them either. But I'm proud to say that even though Cornerstone is far from being a perfect church. We work really hard at creating a safe, sacred place here. One where people can experience a newfound faith in, in, in a loving God. One where people can reconnect with God if they've been hurt somewhere else, maybe in another church or in their family, and they got a, a really warped idea about God's love and grace. One where people can heal from and be supported in their struggles in life, even if that struggle ends in death, their homecoming. And we often call this safe paradigm being fully known and fully loved at the same time because that's how God relates to us. He knows everything about us, everything, all the great things and all the horrible things. There's nothing we can hide from God. And yet, even though he knows it all, he still chooses to love each one of us like we're the best thing since sliced bread. How much more then should we then love each other that way? Fully known and fully loved. That drives our philosophy here. The more I get to know about you, not just the good things, but the struggle things, the more I can say I love you even more. 
Welcome to the world. And so when Jesus said to his disciples, if you have faith, you can say to a mountain, fall into the sea and it will be done. He's using a very common style of rabbinic teaching where you share a very extreme story or parable to emphasize how something about that teaching is extremely important. For example, when Jesus said, if your right hand sins, cut it off. He wasn't suggesting that cutting off body parts is a viable solution to eradicating sin from our lives. Otherwise, we'd all quickly run out of body parts. <laughs> it's just a flesh wound. Now, Jesus is, is merely using an outrageous example to overemphasize the extreme importance of dealing with sin in our lives. And so Jesus' teaching to the disciples that day about faith is to overemphasize how God has given us everything we need to be a people and a place of refuge for desperate people. We are the body of Messiah. We represent his body. And each one of us can take one of his body parts whether it's his hands or its feet, his mouth or his brain or even his belly button, right? And we can exercise our faith in a way that not even a mountain would be able to stand against it. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that to Peter when Peter is surprised. Wow, that's incredible power. And this is the secret and magic behind Cornerstone. If you've been here for a while, then you probably noticed we don't have classes on spiritual gifts. We don't give out a, a spiritual gift assessment. Not that those things are bad. But Jesus' body is represented outside of a classroom. So we tell people, just get out. Be one of his body parts. If God's given you a great brain, use, think like Jesus would think. If he's given you a great mouth, talk like Jesus would talk. If he's given you use of your hands, use your hands the way Jesus used his hands. In your home, on your block, in your school, in your workplace, anywhere you bump into someone who needs Jesus with skin on. It's really so simple. You don't need a class on how to be graceful and kind. I hope so. Anyways. And I want you to know that I have personally benefited from my 28 years here to overcome those negative tapes that I learned in my head. There's a reason why it took 14 years to write my book. Ooh. But when it was published, that was like such a big step for me. Some of you write books every month. But that was a big step for me to get past all the negative tapes I had that said, you can't write a book. No one's going to buy it anyways. Well, some of that's true. Okay. And I wouldn't have lasted a few years here as a lead pastor if God hadn't led me in a way to do some healing work in me that really came as a result of the love and grace that I've experienced here at Cornerstone from all of you. Most of you who know me 
know that I'm still a worst-case scenario guy, though. I get that from those tapes as well. I still show up at the airport way longer than you need to. But then again, I've never missed a flight, have you? <laughs> there are actually some benefits that come from being raised in a neurotic, dysfunctional home, you know? Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, the phrases. Like, there are some good things that come out of that. And I want to end this message. I want to make sure that I have convinced you that Jesus has the curse in mind when he kills that tree. Just in case you are not persuaded yet or you don't think you have enough ammunition, so to speak, to get out there and convince someone else, okay? If you think about this, in the garden we start with abundance. Then there's the fall. And then there's problems, particularly with the food supply, but for everything else, you know? We're going to work, we're going to toil, we're going to sweat. The curse to the woman was not a good thing. Your desire will be for your husband. Trust me, that's a curse. That's not a blessing. It means that you're going to have an unhealthy desire towards somebody. It's, you're not going to be equals in this. And that was a bad thing, okay? But one day, Messiah Jesus is going to come back. And the big question is, what will the food situation be like? Do you know? Well, Ezekiel tells us in, in chapter 47, 12, fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. He's talking about the new kingdom of God. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. What do you need healing for? For all the pain and suffering that you experienced in this lifetime under the curse. Now, Revelation says pretty much the same thing and adds one more thing that I think you're going to go, aha. Okay, Revelation says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal. So this is the same vision Ezekiel is talking about. Flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit. How often? Every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And look how it ends here. And no longer will there be any curse. If that doesn't persuade you that that's what Jesus has in mind, I don't know what else will. And then I just want to end in Micah 4, verses 1 through 4. It talks about the mountain of the Lord, the same, same vision here. And it talks about how when the Messiah comes that warriors will beat their, their spears into plowshares. It just talks about this amazing transformation from nations who are warring together to nations who are loving each other. And then it ends by saying everyone will sit under their own fig tree. And no one will make them afraid for the Almighty has spoken. This is where we're going. Let's pray. Lord, <clears throat> the story is, is a crazy story that you wrote. And I think even after the fall, we're, we, we still are on plan A. I don't think it surprised you. It didn't change your strategy. 
And we'll still be on plan A when we get to New Jerusalem, Lord. But it's hard for a lot of us to live under the curse, to live in a world that is not the way that you made it, to feel the effects of maybe being raised in dysfunctional homes or having been abused in some way through some violent trauma, cancer that takes so many people, disease that takes so many loved ones from us, jobs that we don't feel fulfilled in, that we think of as a ball and chain. There's so many things that make it difficult to bear under the burden of the curse. But we thank you that you've given us everything we need as a family, as a church family, to be able to minister and come alongside and support those people who need it. And in some way, we all need it, and we all need to be that support person as well. And so continue as a church to develop us in that area, Lord, that our highest calling is to help people overcome the struggles of this life and to open their hearts to worship you because of that, Lord. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And today we're going we're gonna to end the service. We thought it would be appropriate to end the service with the baptisms at the end. We're talking about new life. In Romans 6.4 it says, Therefore, it's this picture of baptism. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism. So it's this picture of being crucified with Christ, like our, our life, our old life is going to be buried. And then it says, and we, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too now may live a new life. And so we're celebrating people today who have already made a decision to follow Rabbi Jesus. And now they want to proclaim it publicly to the world that they want to follow Jesus with their heart for the rest of their life. And so, Brian, come on up and help us out that way.